Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Friends, today we've got another live podcast from the beautiful campus of Pepperdine University. But before we get to that, let me tell you about this month's sponsor, the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. It was a dream that began around a kitchen table where a gathering of a few passionate dreamers dared to imagine a new kind of theological, psychological, and cultural training. Since 1997, the Seattle School has been committed to training therapists, pastors, artists, leaders, and social entrepreneurs to be competent in the study of text, soul, and culture in order to serve God and neighbor through transforming relationships. They offer graduate degrees in divinity, counseling, psychology, and theology and culture, and professional development certificates for new parish leaders and lay counselors. Learn more about the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology at theseattleschool.edu. If you forgot that link, just go to our Facebook page, Newsworthy Norsworthy on Facebook, and there will be a link there where you can check them out. So without further ado, here is a fun one with our man from Atlanta, Georgia, Don McLaughlin, coming back, talking about some fun stuff. Get into it, friends. Welcome back to the show, friends. Today we have returning to the show, joining me live in Malibu, California, my good friend, Don McLaughlin. How are you, Don? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Now, if you don't, uh, people don't know, Don is from Atlanta. He lives has lived in Atlanta for eighteen years. Eighteen years, Indiana. Before that, mm-hmm. where was home? Home. Born and raised in Portland, Oregon. Oh, that's right. I always forget, uh, and it's amazing because you you post incessantly about the Trailblazers. Yes, uh, I'm an NBA fan. Probably need a twelve step program. For that, but, uh, <laughs> well, that's all right. That is definitely all right. Uh, now, your wife is out here with you. Mm-hmm. Yep, Susan joined me this year. We're the only two out here from our family this year, but really enjoying it. Now, your family of four mm-hmm. plus grandkids. Mm-hmm. You're on one grandkid. Yeah, we've got five young adult children. Uh, t- two married, one grandkid. So, yep, five. Yeah, daughter-in-law is that the fifth? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh. No, we have a four that we uh, came to Atlanta with, and then met another one in Atlanta and adopted him. So five, five altogether. I'm completely confused. Amy, Aaron, Caleb, Jerome, and Don. And oh, I've I forgot yep. about Don. He's even named after you. Yes. How terrible right. is that? Don't that's tell right. him I said that. Now I um, it, people don't know I interned for you. Yeah. And as you think about like your favorite interns, would you say like I'm Top three, top five, top ten. I want to start like I mean that's. You can, oh, every time I'm on the show, I think you go up one. I go up one. Okay, so now I'm, <laughs> am I top fifty now? Oh uh, no, 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 no. Let, let's let, <laughs> let's be realistic. Top five. You know, you've got Trevor Thompson and Brad East and Jimmy McCarty in that group. I mean, that's good company. Okay. Now there's a rumor that Trevor, who is a a brilliant person, yeah. would was teaching you Hebrew by phone. Yeah, it's absurd. I'm never going to top that. I was a lowly junior high youth intern, and Trevor <laughs> is this brilliant guy, teach, PhD from Chicago, yeah, uh-huh. and he's yeah. teaching you Hebrew over the phone. Yeah, it was absurd. Trevor is the kind of guy that probably needs an extra lung just to run his brain. That makes that, sense. That, he's that guy. Yeah. yeah. Now, the difference is I took uh, a year of Hebrew, two semesters from a gym with a PhD from Harvard, Yes. and I still don't know like the little dots. Yeah. You yeah, probably learned it yeah. over the phone, and now you can speak it fluently. Yeah, no, but uh, Trevor can't. But no, I actually took Hebrew at Emory, 
And uh, but oh, okay. uh, Trevor is my go-to guy anytime I need someone to either point me in the right direction for a resource or to verify something I'm trying to understand. You just go right to him. Yep. And that's a pretty nice person you can yep. go to. You were on the show, um, I guess, eight months ago, a while mm-hmm. ago, and I've had more feedback from mm-hmm. that podcast than I ever would imagine. People absolutely loved mm. you and i think part of it was we were talking ferguson yep. and race relations i mean that is right in one of your major passions and so yeah. was, i think part of the reason people loved it so much it was that's down in a sweet spot mm-hmm. yeah that's the heart of i believe the heart of the gospel is god showing that he can redeem things that people don't think can be redeemed and it's easy to manipulate things but for people to come together, it has to be authentic. And there's a lot of work to that and a lot of reward. Yeah. Oh, that's good. You told a story about um, Jerome getting pulled over. Well, the boy. Well, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I had a friend that mm. uh, I, I used to uh, live in the same area as him, and he has a son. Mm. And there's a crazy story that reminded me just of that one. He and uh, his friends, they were all uh, one uh, Hispanic, two uh, African-American guys and then uh, white kid, they get pulled over and they go to jail because they egg someone's house. Mm. And there was a group of four all white kids that were out drinking and they had a house party and they never, nothing yeah. happened to them. Yeah. And my friend told his son, he said, hey, this is just how it works. Yeah. And it's not fair, but this is just your re- reality. And you tell a story about the difference in your white son, your African-American son, yeah. and it's just... Yeah, it's fascinating. They, uh, three of them were together once, and they got pulled over. Jerome was the only one that ended up in the patrol car, but he wasn't even driving. Oh, it's kind of fascinating. But I think the key thing that we're learning through, whether it's Ferguson or Baltimore, wherever it is, I think what we're learning is there are police people who don't think like this. Yeah. And they've had to labor under really difficult circumstances. And so what's happening is the systemic abuse is being exposed. And my, my prayer is that those that can lead the way out are going to rise and in influence in those departments, mm. yeah. you know, mm. and uh, show us a better future. And it also tells us that there's been warriors for equality buried under this su- systemic oppression for decades. Yeah. And wow. those those silent warriors are beginning to see the fruition of their work, albeit through tragedy. Yeah, I had a friend who's in law enforcement who reached out to me and said, I really you know, appreciated what you were doing and, and, and your voice in this, which might seem counterintuitive because in some ways we're nope. saying, you know, there's white privilege and, and there's white people who get a break with law enforcement. But they're like you're saying, there are plenty of good law enforcement officers who are doing yes. the best they can, and they don't want to perpetuate what's going on That's right, right now. And, um, yeah, so I, uh, people love that, and I and I we could talk about that more. But yep. I wanted to talk to you about something that, unfortunately, we wanted to have a third person in the conversation. Mm. Your daughter Amy, I know, and she couldn't be here. That's right. She's uh, she's working and uh, doing a great job, and so she couldn't be here this weekend. Okay, now when I was an intern at North Atlanta, she was just fifth grade mm-hmm. and uh she used to joke about like giving me razors to shave my legs and i was like it's <laughs> 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 just it, it makes me feel old and awkward and like the whole shaving legs and i probably need to explain that but uh, yeah. we'll just we'll just leave it there yeah. but so now she's all grown up yes she is finishing an mdiv yep. somewhat soon yep and okay so what i want to talk to you about obviously i'm a daughter a father of three daughters yes and so i'm always interested in fathers who did a good job, and their daughter seemed to have turned mm. out well. And so that's an interesting thing to me, too, but especially with a daughter who's going to be a preacher. Yes. Because I'm assuming you're growing up in the Pacific Northwest. Yep. 
there probably were not a whole lot of female preachers when you were none that age. I knew of. Yeah, none you knew. And then you go to Indiana. You're at a church there. I'm assuming you didn't have right. Barbara Brown Taylor coming in and guest lecturing right. for you. She's not preaching for you. That's right. Uh, and so when Amy says, "Dad, I'm interested in preaching," mm-hmm. what's your first response? Well, first of all, I was very excited about it. Um, and let me just explain that process. So when you when your children are growing up in Christ, you long f- for nothing more for them to be intimate with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you want more than anything. And you want him to grasp their passions and their thinking and their heart. And part of the reason is because by that stage in life, you realize that there are very there are a lot of empty ways to go. A lot of things that, you know, they don't yield uh, a great life. And then, of course, in my experience, when I came to Christ, I discovered you know, this uh, person in whom I could anchor my life. So I want that for my children. So you want them to have that connection? Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, you know, they're gifted. So you begin to see those gifts play out. But she's she's, uh, very gifted. So she's gifted in music, gifted in all these things, very passionate about all these things. So she went away to college. And at first she was thinking like music and English, which she would have been great. Yeah. You know, uh, her oldest brother is an absolute genius in English, you know, finishing his doctorate. So that would have been a great path, you know, to, to already have kind of, you know, someone down the road, a trail yeah, guide. Of course. But what I realized was, is she had to figure out the, the big questions. Well, what would God have me do? Hmm. See? So then... As she starts leaning into theology, as a parent, I can see her hit her stride. You could just say, "Hey, this yeah. is this is your sweet spot." This is <laughs> what like what made is it just an intuitive thing or was yeah? Something? It was the passion she had, her success in classes, her ability to bring in theological information, but to assimilate it into daily living. Mm-hmm. You know, and I could see her having this dialogue with scripture and this dialogue that was informed by prayer, the spirit. And I could just tell this is growing into something that God wants her to do. Yeah. You know, now the other thing, of course, is, you know, this is a mark of the kingdom. You know, you what look do you mean? at, you know, you look at Acts two and they're confused. They think the apostles are drunk and. Peter lets them know their drinking schedule, you know, never starts before <laughs> nine, you know, which is always. You, you and me both. You and me both. <laughs> which was always comedic. It, have you ever, has someone ever confused your preaching for you being a drunk guy before? Uh, might be. <laughs> and uh, just wondering if I have a sense at all. And uh, so then, you know, Peter says, well, let me explain that, that this, is, this is what's going to show the kingdom is that the men and the women, the sons and the daughters, mm-hmm. you know, are going to experience something that's going to kind of mark the kingdom, you know. And then, of course, obviously, you come into the book of Acts and you see women as participants in the gospel, yeah. which those that know the backdrop of of uh, Jewish heritage and faith know that this was a fresh yeah. statement yeah. for all of them. Uh, and then you've got Philip and his daughters, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that are prophesying. And you begin to realize that anytime there's an abuse of a practice, that is not a valid reason for the disuse of a practice. Hmm. What do you mean? By, what, what, what kind of abuse? So we, we look at the New Testament and we see these abusive experiences that are addressed. You like know, First Corinthians Timoth- 14, yeah. First Timothy and in Ephesus. And you realize that these abusive experiences being addressed. And so our tendency in, in life 
is that when something is abused, we immediately kind of section it off and categorize it. Like what you were talking about earlier with police people. Oh, well, all police are bad. All pl- No, they're not. We know that. Yeah. But when you see abuse, it's easy to lean into that. Well, mm-hmm. that's the same thing that, I, in my opinion, we've done with uh, women and their place in the kingdom. Hmm. is we see these abuses. So we interpret 1 Corinthians 14 and then overlay it on chapter 11 Mm -hmm. rather than letting chapter 11 stand Mm -hmm. for what it is, their role in that church. And then chapter 14 to kind of come back around and say, oh, and by the way, there's this other issue we've got to address that's not just the women, it's these tongue speakers and prophets and so on. But we've found ourselves now recognizing that we created a category for women, and we even called it women's role, as if somehow men were in charge of what women do instead of women answering to God. Yeah, that's, that seems to make a little bit more sense. So I wanted my daughter not to answer to me. She, she, needs to, she needs to have this intimate relationship with God that she can be called up into. Yeah. So, so was that your theological position from the beginning or just kind of evolved? And I say beginning like, you know, as a young preacher. Mm. Boy, that's a great question. No. Yeah. No. So that evolved with study, okay. you know, over yeah. time. Now, you know, I came to Christ in college and the people that led me to Christ definitely rooted me in the word yeah you know which of course yeah. you know that's where you're rooted and so as i kept studying the word of god you know just more and more and more i, I realized that i had an indefensible position and yeah. so you know once you find that out then you yeah. you, you got to ask yourself well then all right where, where where does the word lead me what do i do how do i wait so how did how did you become aware of that well okay the first thing was the whole acts two thing really bothered me for a while really you know that this is a mark of the kingdom Okay, so what was it about like Acts two compared to say like uh, the end of Acts or the end of Romans where there's Junia who's a woman apostle, mm. or you have so what like what was it oh, about specifically yeah, yeah, about yeah. yeah okay well part of it is you know you're stumbling through Scripture right yeah so you become aware of one thing then another then another yeah yeah, yeah of course right yeah uh, and then you know like the whole thing and uh, can I jump to First Corinthians eleven do, do what you want oh my goodness so I'm reading First Corinthians eleven and I come to verse four and it says that the guys aren't to wear head coverings. Check. You don't wear a hat. And I'm like, wait a minute. He's, he, he even spoke to the guys before the women. And I'm thinking, well, what's the matter with wearing a head covering? Why do the guys in Corinth have to take off their head covering? Yeah. Right? Because what we realize from history is that didn't become a hard and fast rule for everybody. You know, the idea of having a prayer shawl, mm-hmm. you know, a man of wearing that as a sign of humility or whatever. That was not a universal thing mm-hmm. uh, that, that the guys there. So my wife and I made, or in fact, our whole family made this trip and we were in Corinth. And I began to notice uh, some of the statues where the men in worshipful poses had head coverings. Hmm. And I was like, hmm. So I start doing research, you know, reading articles by some guys that are uh, incredibly deep into the study, Dr. Richard Oster, people like that. Mm-hmm. And I begin to realize that part of what Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians with the men is he was saying, when you worship with your head covered, you're aligning yourself with idols and false religion. Hmm. Interesting. So we're going to have to do something that, that breaks that alignment with false gods. Yeah. yeah See? Yeah. So now the men have something they've got to do in Corinth for the sake of the gospel, but that doesn't translate to Jerusalem. Yeah. The no head covering. That doesn't how, translate. How did you get to the 
to the point where you could say this is for one specific context and it's not timeless, but it's yeah. this is very temporary for this this group of people right here and not say it's a universal. Okay, here's a funny thing. Uh, when we were going through this at our church in Atlanta, we have a real diverse church. And, uh, you know, talking about the long hair and what all that looks like. And one of our sisters uh, whose heritage uh, is from Africa said, you do realize that not everybody thinks about long hair the same way. Huh. And she had a wink like <laughs> you do realize you should have thought of this sooner. You know, <laughs> that here if you're in, you know, you're in Corinth, then some of the people in Corinth, that's the Mediterranean. So some of them are going to be from North Africa. Some of them are going to be from the Southern Mediterranean Rim. Some from the Northern Mediterranean Rim. Some from East. Some from West. And if you go a thousand miles south, south, south of there, south of there, there then what long looks like and how people experience isn't going to be the same. Yeah. So I started realizing that for the Apostle Paul, the bottom line is the gospel. Hmm. That's the big deal. And the other issue is, for most of us, we're thinking, okay, what do all women everywhere do based on the culture we're in? Instead of, what do all women everywhere do who know Christ help get the gospel out? Yeah. And so you're saying, you know, Paul's biggest concern is about the gospel. Yeah. And sometimes we might get that a little bit backwards. So all this is going on theologically in mm -hmm. your head. Do you mind get like a timeline kind yeah. of how, maybe how old was Amy while this was going on? Okay. So this is, this is a story that uh, Amy reminded me of. Mm -hmm. And I remember it um, at night, we would have all these stories with our kids and spend time, you know, just in, in uh, laying in bed, praying with them, telling stories with them, enjoying all of that. And uh, one night, uh, she was about maybe eight years old. Okay. And uh, so we're laying in bed uh, next to one another. After we'd finished story time, we're kind of relaxing. Yeah. And she said, do you have dreams? And I said, you mean like awake dreams or asleep dreams? Uh -huh. And she said, you know, awake dreams. And I said, yeah. And she said, do you have any about me? And I said, yes. And she said, could you tell me one? And oh, I wow. said, yes. I said, I dream that someday you and I'll preach together. You, she's eight? Yep. And, and you're at a church at that point where that's not right, on the table. Right. And she said, me too. Oh. And she was eight. Well, I never knew that any of that was being processed in her thinking. Oh, okay, did you, did you really have that? I mean, was that something you really thought as an eight-year-old? Oh, I did. I did. Because what I could see is she was a defender of the marginalized, a comforter of the hurting. She was deeply interested in spiritual things from the get-go. And she was able to articulate it. So I had to wonder. Really? Is God doing something here? Okay, so how are you wondering that when you know the system that not only you're part of, but you're you're the spokesman yeah, for yeah. does not enable her to do the things that you're wondering, maybe this is what she should be doing? Well, I think part of it is, is because as God is working with you, it doesn't all happen at once, yeah. right? Yeah. Even my own conversion didn't all happen at once. You know, you're in the process of it. And so I... I think God can convict you of something before you know how it's going to work out, hmm. you know, yeah. and, and even for me, a good distance before I was willing to be baptized, God was really convicting me of wholehearted submission to him. Right. Yeah. So 
In fact, and this is kind of a, a, a good point here. So I'm in college. So God is convicting me of sexual purity before I'm convicted about baptism. Hmm. Well, that doesn't mean that sexual purity was somehow me working for my salvation. No. It was just something I was convicted about mm -hmm. before I was convicted about baptism. But all of it was a part of me coming into full submission to Christ. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that that theological development in my life was happening before I could imagine how it would happen. Of course. It was just happening. And the other thing, I think most of us feel this way. When you look at Scripture and it and you realize that something about you or something about your world or something about your system doesn't reflect Scripture, you can know the truth before you know how the truth will manifest itself in your life. So is that like saying you know you knew there's something about preaching male and female? Yeah. You knew there's something there you weren't able to conceptualize and articulate, yep. but yep. you knew somewhere inside of you something's something's changing and yeah. and you don't know what to know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Like you remember uh there's a guy in Acts chapter six, Philip, and he's part of this solution to this uh -huh. widow uh, differentiation problem. Well, he shows back up a couple chapters later and he's, he's a missionary, you know, he's preaching, yeah, yeah. right? Well, we don't hear much about his family until later on in the book of Acts. And we hear that he's got these four daughters that prophesy. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'm just going to lay it out here. I would read over that and get past it as quickly as possible. Really? Yeah. Cause like, you, why, did you know why you were doing that? I had no clue what to do with it. I mean, I knew what to do with him. Uh -huh. I mean, oh, okay, well, he was this servant guy and found his voice, and God called him into ministry, and I, I knew what to do with him. But the four daughters that prophesy, I had no idea what that would look like, sound like, act like. Where do you even do that? Yeah. So it's I'm, I, I want to be transparent. So I would ignore it partially out of fear that I would start talking about it and not know what to do with it, and partially because I just couldn't conceptualize within the system I was in, mm -hmm. well, how do women do what the Bible says women were doing? And I, I couldn't piece it together. Do, do you think you were aware that there's some sort of like cognitive dissonance going on? Like, I, I want to be a person that texts. And, yeah. and, and I have people who, who are friends of the show, listen to the show, that, that are not from the Churches of Christ. And I think one of the things they see, like, as you're talking or listen, is, gosh, this guy talks about the Bible a whole lot. And that's yeah. definitely one of the best things about the tradition that you and I yeah. are part of. Yes. And yes. so you're, you're, you want to be a person of the text. You yes. see stuff in the text that doesn't line up with your praxis. Right. And so you're trying to live yes. with that. And so something's going on. And okay, so you're wrestling with this. Age eight, you tell Amy, I have a vision you're preaching. Yeah. What's, give us kind of like the timeline of to get to, she's 20 something right now. She's 25, and, yeah. Well, okay, so what happens is we move forward, and to, to be also transparent, we don't talk about that more, but not because I'm not aware of it. It's just like, I'm not, I don't think that I'm, Obviously, I'm not the one that calls her. God does that. God does it with all of them, right? So even she has another brother that's a missionary. And I was there when God called him, but I was not a part of that. I was an observer, mm -hmm. but I was not a part of it. So, you know, you just realize this is between them and God. It has to be to be authentic, right? Yeah. But I think all of us could kind of see that when she got engaged in the formation. 
of her calling, you could just see it start to unfold. And I've even talked to some of her professors who are in the same tradition that I'm in. Many of them, like me, didn't envision something like that earlier in their ministry for many reasons, but most of it just uh, our, our, our development didn't bring yeah. that to us, yeah, right? Yeah. But I've talked to them, and, and they were just like, wow, you know, we watched this authentic thing unfold. And uh, something that was fascinating is we'd be on the phone together and she'd be telling me what she was learning and, and how she was experiencing truths from Scripture. And I would just think to myself, wow, you know, that is so rich and integral and integrated. And then she starts learning biblical languages, you know, Greek, uh, uh, Hebrew, and then learning languages that support biblical studies, Syriac. That's and, just showing off. I know. That's, that was ridiculous. Oh, no. And, uh, and uh, so I'm making sure I'm brushing up on it so I can at least <laughs> follow the conversation. But what I'm realizing is, is that what I was seeing in her was not different than Scripture, but it started making sense out of those Scriptures that earlier I didn't know what to do with. Yeah. Wow, that makes sense. So she's in some ways helping your understanding of text. Yeah. More importantly, your understanding of like the heart of God and, and yeah. what, what it looks like. So as this is happening, your daughter decides she's going to be a preacher. She's yeah. called to do this. It's been affirmed by the community. Yeah. You guys are, are fully supportive of yes. this. What is it like when that happens? And then maybe, I don't know what North Atlanta is like now, but when I was there, I, there were not women on stage using the gift that yeah. your daughter and many other women have. What does it do for you as someone who's leading the church and you see this in your home life and you're like, how do I make sense of my, my home life and the church I'm a part of? Because yeah. one of the things about you, obviously, is you're, uh, I, I get the impression you're very authentic and, mm -hmm. and very passionate. And I've never seen someone shake their head as much as you do when mm -hmm. someone else is preaching. You're just, yeah. th that's just you. You want to be fully into something. Yeah. So how did you do that? What, what was that process like? Or okay. is the process like? Yeah. Well, okay. I, I, thought, I, I, I thought of this. You remember when... Um, uh, God was working in the heart of Cornelius to bring Cornelius to faith. Okay. And then he's bringing Peter along as well. Mm -hmm. So I heard a, a message here a couple of years ago uh, by Randy Harris on the conversion of Peter, you know, mm -hmm. and how God isn't just converting Cornelius, he's converting Peter. So Peter gets to Cornelius's house and he says, you realize that none of my people think I should be here. Hmm. But I realize now that God doesn't show favoritism, but he accepts everybody. Now, that's very instructive for our question that you just posed to me. What do you do when our people, my people, my church family or my family or whoever, doesn't think I should be here? But God is saying, no, this is a place where I want you to be. Mm -hmm. Well, what's fascinating is, first of all, we are a diverse family, and we're very respectful of each other. So I don't actually believe it's my role to convince anybody of anything. Hmm. So if somebody doesn't see this for themselves, part of our tradition is that we don't make that a test of fellowship. I mean, that goes deep into our tradition, that I don't make it a test of my fellowship with someone if they can't see something in Scripture that is now plain to me. Hmm. I, that, you know, because I wouldn't even be in fellowship with myself. Yeah, I mean, you can be in fellowship with yourself a decade ago. Bingo. Nor could I. Right. Yeah. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing is, is I discovered a whole bunch of people were ahead of me. Really? Oh, we had many people that had studied this out years ago of all ages. 
uh, people in their 80s who had studied these things out a long time ago. And they had been patient with you. Yeah, they had been patient with me coming along. And I realized, whoa, okay. So rather than me, I, I didn't actually feel like a pioneer at all. Uh, not at all, but you understand my language. Yeah. Rather than me being some pioneer in this, I just realized, no, there's been a whole bunch of people deeply rooted in Scripture, deeply rooted in our tradition that had this worked out a long time ago, and they were patient with me. So who would I be to not be patient with, with everybody else? Yeah. Now, what's happened in our church, though, is very, very authentic, hmm. and that is that you you make the gospel the core. Okay. That's the core. So what the gospel calls us to is the core of things. So like you can look at this um, real briefly on this. So some people say, well, is a church chauvinistic, right? So, you know, Nicholas Chauvin, French guy, uh, uh, under Napoleon, uh, a guy that was kind of had this aura of being kind of a superhuman guy, a soldier, yeah. heroic, iconic, you know, kinda, bigger bigger kinda, than life. Kind of remind you of me a little bit. I was thinking that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, exactly. Yeah. And uh and uh, so to 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 be a chauvin meant that you inherently had something that was just kind of better than everybody else. Hmm. Right? So the idea of a chauvin, you say to somebody he's chauvinistic or she's chauvinistic meant, well, they had qualities that were inherently better than others. So when we use that term now based on Nicholas Chauvin, what we're saying is, is that when we, when we say male chauvinism, we're meaning, oh, well, then we're thinking of males as inherently better than females. Mm-hmm. And so we know, okay, well, that's not right. We go to egalitarian, which is, of course, also based off a French term. Um, which kind of means that every everything is equal and level, right? Yeah. Well, I think what the Apostle Paul might do if he was had the third microphone is, first of all, he would say, tell me who this Chauvin guy is, you know, and what does mm-hmm. egalitarian mean? I'm not sure that Paul would easily allow us to call him one, 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 or, one or the other. Hmm. I think what Paul says is he was a gospeler. And that makes more sense out of Paul's confusing ways sometimes is for Paul, if it if it's for the sake of the gospel, we'll do it. We'll do anything. So we'll be willing for men to take off their head covering or men to put them on or women to put them on or 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 men to approach it this way or women to approach it this way. I mean, if that's what it takes to get the gospel, Paul says, Oh, I'd even become weak to the weak if I could get the gospel to them. Hmm. Well, how do we keep the gospel as a centerpiece instead of letting issues, mm. whether they are secondary issues or very essential issues, but still not the the message, you know, Jesus Lord, that that's the, the central thing. Mm. But these issues mean a whole lot to a lot of people. And for if you can imagine if you and I both had been, we've been called to preach. That's our passion. That's our desire to do it. Yes. And for our entire life, we weren't able to do it. Mm. And then to say, you know what, you know, we're just centralized about the gospel. And so, you know, your, your 20 or 50 or 60 years of, of struggle ah. is, you know, it, it's secondary. So we just need to focus on the gospel. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I think what maybe we would suggest would be that the gospel changes things. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the concept of the gospel in Scripture is that God is in the world and all things can change. 
Okay. That's the gospel. And it's rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's good. Right? So Galatians 3, uh, Paul says, oh, well, the gospel was foreannounced to Abraham. You're like, well, yeah, he is 2,100 years before Christ. Oh, yeah, I know. But the gospel was foreannounced to him. Well, what, what was that pronouncement? The pronouncement was that through you, all nations will be blessed. And Abraham says, you know, that could have been possible, but I'm an old guy and so is my wife and she's barren. And God says, hey, I'm in this. Hmm. Is there anything too difficult for me? So in Abraham and Sarah, God says, and even changes their names to say that if I'm involved, everything can change. Mm -hmm. So that's the gospel. So can a dead man raise? Well, yes, of course, because God's involved and all things can change. See, Mm -hmm. so the nature of the eternal gospel, Revelation 14, 6, Mm -hmm. the eternal gospel is that if God is involved, all things can change. That's the gospel. And it's rooted in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Mm -hmm. so then when you come into a situation, it's not that men could never in Corinth ever wear a head covering. Or that women could be in any culture and that long hair might mean one thing a thousand miles south of, mm-hmm. of, of, of Corinth and then a thousand miles north. It means that wherever you are, there are cultural things you have to be aware of that either help the gospel move into that culture and redeem it for God mm-hmm. or put barriers to the gospel moving into that culture, redeeming it for God. Mm, okay. So I've got to believe that if the gospel gets involved, that's what's going to change things. And so maybe I step in and I'm a man and it's as uncomfortable as I'll get out in Corinth, but I can't wear a head covering in Corinth. And my granddad thinks I've gone off the deep end. My dad thinks I've gone off the deep end. But over time, as I gospel out my life, my dad realizes that I have found the true and one God in in, in Yahweh. And then my granddad sees that and our family has changed. Mm -hmm. And then they realize it wasn't about me wearing the head covering in Corinth or not. It was about me showing who the true God of heaven and earth is. And so if we would center in the gospel, then I would say to that person who's been waiting for their voice, the gospel can so change culture that God can make a place for your voice where there wasn't one. Hmm. Oh, that's good. Okay, so we've uh, you got to get out of here in just three minutes. But if you were to talk to an Amy who didn't have a father who was affirming her, mm-hmm. uh, an Amy who was told by her dad, no, that's not for you, mm-hmm. but I know you think you're called to do this, but that's not how we do things, and she was never able to hear what Amy heard from you and you had one opportunity to talk to this girl who feels called to preach, but has been told, no, you don't have the ability to do that. What would you like to say to them? I would tell her, honor your father and mother hmm. because that's the first promise, you know, gift yeah. of the promise, that's right? A, it's a big one. That's a big one. Top 10. Yep. I would say to dialogue so that you're not constantly trying to tell your father uh, or mother what, uh, what you want them to hear but you're giving them the opportunity to flesh out what their struggle with it is. Hmm. Then make sure that in every personal conversation you have, you make the, you make the most of every opportunity to articulate this gospel that is alive in you. Mm -hmm. Right. And then at some point there may be this, this discomfort of stepping into something that the people who love you most don't fully understand. Hmm. 
but don't take their lack of support as meaning they don't love you. Just take it as a complex part of them trying to live out authentically who they are, and you're trying to live out authentically who you are. Hmm. That's good. Okay, so your dream when Amy was eight, yep. some, uh, what is that, 17 years ago, mm-hmm. was that you and her would preach together. Mm-hmm. Has it happened? Yep. How was yeah. it? Oh, it was amazing. We did um, uh, the baptism of Jesus, and she articulated that when Jesus said we must do this, to fulfill all righteousness, that it was the second person, plural pronoun, we. That it wasn't just for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, but it was for John to mm. fulfill all righteousness. And by John telling Jesus no, Jesus had to say, you know, you realize, John, we both need to do this. You need to step into something that you don't think you're ready to step into. And Amy said, that whenever you give your life to God, you surrender your right to say things about yourself that your father in heaven would not say. Mm. And I was so floored. Okay. So are you crying? Like, is that like, I'm so proud of you. And they're like, Oh, that's really good. And like, Oh, right in the middle of the message, I looked at her and he said, could you say that again? (laughs) Because it was just boom. It was the clear voice of God. And what the church experienced was, well, that made sense. Yeah, It wasn't about taking a stand or some issue. It was about a proclamation of the gospel of God into the lives of people. And mm. it just made sense. Yeah. Oh, that's good. All right. You got to get out of here. Yep. Don, it's a blast talking oh, to you. Unbelievable. You Thanks, are the man. Thank you, you are the man. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>